Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you are here. I want to thank everyone who contributes to this podcast, everybody who listens, everybody who who leaves a rating or a review, everyone who donates. We really need donations to keep this operation going. This is a voice of hope and inspiration and awakening in the world. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, whatever podcast platform that you listen. I'm on YouTube now, so you can also subscribe to YouTube. And also, I've got an online survey that is in my newsletter. So if you would subscribe to my newsletter, you can get a link to that. And it's also on the website, thespiritualforum.org. Really, really interested in getting feedback on what do you love about this podcast? What do you get from it? What would you like to see differently? Thank you in advance for participating in that. All right, let me introduce my guest. This is a return guest, Mark Gober. He was a guest on this podcast, episode 178, which is like 20 episodes ago. And in that podcast, we talked about an end to upside down thinking. Mark's quite prolific, is quite a prolific writer, having published five books in five years. I'm still waiting to do my first. (laughs) And these books are An End to Upside Down Thinking, An End to Upside Down Living, An End to Upside Down Liberty. An end to upside down contact, and most recently, an end to upside down reset. He's the host of the podcast Where Is My Mind, which was published in 2019. And I really, really recommend that podcast. It's really wonderful and it really will help you see how, how upside down our thinking is and learn about the origin of consciousness. Mark also serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Today, I asked Mark to come back to the show to talk mostly about his third book, An End to Upside Down Liberty. And we're going to be talking about how this relates to the evolutionary process of humanity to our highest divine expression. So even though we're going to be talking about liberty and government and all of that, This is a spiritual conversation of the highest order. Very, very important conversation. I'm so excited to have Mark on today. Welcome, Mark. Rev. Carol, thank you so much for having me. It's always great. Lately, I've been asking my guests to just provide an an encapsulation of your message up front so we know where we're going with this whole podcast. So when it comes to the, the thesis in an end to upside down liberty, can you give us kind of a summary of what that is about? Sure. So the basic message is that the the way we do government in the United States and all over the world and have been doing government inherently violates spiritual principles. And what I'm arguing is that we need to move away from the current governmental structure in a more evolved society, not to eliminate the things that the government does because they the government serves important functions, but the way in which government operates and is structured could be in a more evolved manner as we progress. Okay. So there we go. This is really tied into who we are as spiritual beings, what you know, where we're going on our divine evolution. And so it's going to be a great conversation. Do you want to share a little bit about how you got interested in these five books that you've written? 
And oh my gosh, like five books in five years. That's that's the most. <laughs> I always tell people you're 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 a, a young man who has the most clear mind that I know. It's like your thoughts go directly from your mind to your paper or something because I I this the prolificness of that writing is so so impressive. But how did you get to to that? I know that the pandemic kind of caused you to have a project, but still that's a lot of that's a lot of writing. Yes. Well, thank you. I. I don't really know how this has happened. I can't explain it. We talked about this last time, but just to briefly summarize my background, I used to work in investment banking in New York and then advising tech companies in Silicon Valley. I used to be a non-spiritual person, atheistic or agnostic. I thought life was random and meaningless. And I kind of hit a wall in many areas of my life, personally and professionally, starting around 2014, 2015, while I was still working. And then I came across information that challenged my worldview, specifically the science of consciousness. And that was in 2016, and it's led me down many rabbit holes of wanting to explore, just trying to understand who we are, what are we doing here, what is this place, what should we be doing? And my first two books focused on those, I would say, metaphysical topics and the implications. And my the three books after that, well, especially the Liberty book, is focusing more on applying those spiritual principles to the world in which we operate and how society should be structured. But in late 2019, I decided to leave my firm where I had spent about a decade, became a partner and decided I wanted to focus on these other topics full time. Coinciding with that was the pandemic. And of course, I didn't know that was going to happen before I decided to leave my job. But it left me in this very interesting position where I had lots of time to think about things and to learn about new topics. And the pandemic hit. So there were lots of medical issues, but also political issues coming about. At the time, I was very much apolitical or maybe even beyond apolitical where I just, I didn't even care about politics. It wasn't something I thought about ever. So that's my, the orientation that I, I come from. And as the world events were unfolding, I realized that I wanted to have a position on various things that were happening because I saw things that were happening and I agreed with certain people, disagreed with others. And I realized that there was a lot of information that people were basing their opinions on where maybe the information was not so good, or maybe they just didn't have the complete set of information, myself included. So it just led me to be very curious as to what's really going on in this world and how does it relate to my prior explorations of spirituality? So that led me down the rabbit hole of trying to understand what is government because I found myself being very much in favor of human liberties, but not necessarily agreeing with everything that I would hear on the left or everything I'd hear on the right as, as general terms, where I just, I didn't know where I, I sat. So I was really trying to figure out, well, how does this stuff work? What are these different ends of the political spectrum? And I ended up where we're, what we're going to talk about today, which is sort of, it's sort of not even on the political spectrum because both the the left and the right, generally speaking, are arguing for ways in which government should be controlling our lives, to put it bluntly, and they just might have different views on how that should happen. Whereas what I'm now arguing is that this entity called government should not be operating in the way it is in which it controls so many aspects of our lives. Yeah, and I think it's really important to note, and I completely agree, this conversation is not about left or right. <laughs> It's right. like it's like those polarities are it's it's like they've been imposed on us in a way to just to kind of keep us fighting or divided. It's not like one is good and the other is bad. You're completely right. They're both part of the system that we're not even looking at because we're so busy fighting if we're right, we're busy fighting with the left. If we're left, we're busy fighting with the right and calling each other names and saying you're wrong. And we're all, we're both looking at trying to form something that 
is not really overall serving us as human beings and as spiritual beings. And that's something that we're completely blind to because I, I, I think when I challenge people that to, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I was going to say when I challenge people to look at what would a world look like, you know, if, if, if we were really looking from a standpoint of the evolution of us as spiritual beings, what would we design? Would we design what we have? And people just can't see what else we would design other than what's there. Yeah, that's well stated. The status quo is a certain form of governance. And we're so accustomed to that status quo that the basic assumptions often go unquestioned. That's what I realized because a lot of the topics we'll talk about today, many people haven't thought of before. I hadn't thought about them until very recently because it's not what we're taught in school. It's not what the media presents to us. The media and, and just general societal thinking starts with the presumption of a certain way of governing and then ask questions from that foundation. And what we're going to do today is question that very foundation. Yeah. And I want to just acknowledge the audience who is listening right now, because this is going to be kind of a mind-bending conversation. This is going to be something where we're going to be talking about things that we haven't thought about before. And I, I really think part of the spiritual path is that, is looking at like Don Miguel Ruiz, who talks about the domestication of the planet, all of the indoctrination, everything that we've inherited all of the customs and the cultural things that we accept, that it's so invisible to us that there could be anything other than that. And in so many ways that we can't even identify them. So today, we're going to be bringing up things that I think will just kind of stretch people. You got to get outside of the box of what we know and kind of start to explore you know, what we don't know and have an open heart and open mind to it. So I appreciate all the listeners who are willing to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you to the audience who's willing to go down this rabbit hole because it is challenging. And I, I want to also add that in my, my own process, I heard some of these ideas for the first time and it wasn't like I had a paradigm shift overnight. With something as big as this, it can take time for the, all of the machinations to unfold because inevitably there will be lots of questions for such a big paradigm shift. So my suggestion would be just to take the information in with an open mind and then let, let it marinate for a while. Yeah. Yeah, like don't reject right away. That we tend to go, this is weird, reject, you know, this is weird, reject. <laughs> and just let, let's, let's look at it like it's clay, like something that we can kind of play with and and see what else we can create out of it. Yes. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about government and let's talk about what what is it about government that we wouldn't want. Okay, so government is a compulsory structure. So this word compulsory versus voluntary, this is really fundamental to our discussion today. What do I mean by compulsory? We're born in a certain territory, a certain jurisdiction, and then we are bound to the rules of the government. In political theory, it's known as the state, generally speaking. And our consent to what the government is telling us we need to do or what its laws are is implicit. It's implied. And what do I mean by that? The government provides services to society. I would argue very important services like helping with the roads, court systems, legal system, police and military. But as a service provider, if we want to think about government that way, it has special privileges basically relative to other service providers in society. 
So let's think about lawyers, for example. If lawyers have a client, there will be a contract between the law firm and the customer, the client. So the client hires the law firm. And typically, there's a contract that specifies what the arrangement will be like. So it will talk about the pricing. It will talk about what the service provider's obligations are to the client, what happens if the service provider fails to fulfill those obligations, so possible termination. It will lay all of these things out explicitly, and the contract will be mutually agreed upon. So both parties will say, okay, I consent to this explicitly. Now, I laid that out because if you think about government as a service provider, it provides all these services, but we don't have that kind of an explicitly contractual relationship. It's much more implicit. Like we do decide to live in a certain jurisdiction and we know that by doing so, we're going to be, we're going to be beholden to certain rules. But in a world where government runs everything, it might run it in different ways depending on the jurisdiction. What are the options really? You could just go to another territory and then you'd be under those rules where the government sort of has this implied consent relationship. So I'll pause there because this is the fundamental aspect that we'll be talking about. Our relationship with government is not explicitly voluntary and therein lie many problems. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, there's that kind of age old saying that, you know, this, you can always depend on two things, death and taxes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, wait a minute. You don't have to depend on taxes, <laughs> but it 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 is so. It is something that we are not in. We are not in an agreement. We are born into a system that is imposed on us. Mm-hmm. I don't sign a contract with my state government, with my local government. I don't sign a contract with the national government, but I am required to fulfill their part. I mean, what, what they expect of me, I'm required to do, even though I didn't consent. Yes. And you are required to pay for things that you might not agree with. You might even find certain things to be immoral. And when I say pay for those things, I mean through taxation. Whereas with a typical service provider, they provide a service and you agree, well, I'm going to pay for the service. I'm going to hire them. That's not exactly how it works with government. Right, right. I think about the things that I want to put my money to. You know, the things that I, I look at money as energy and, and I, I can be very excited about writing a check to an organization that I'm very much in alignment with and that they, that is fulfilling a purpose that, that I believe is, you know, part of my own desires on the planet and it's doing good. And I feel good about writing that check. And taxation, as I've said this for a long time, it really is done at the end of a gun. I mean, (laughs) in the end, if I don't pay my taxes, somebody comes to my house eventually. And if I continue to not pay my taxes, somebody eventually comes with a gun and takes me away and puts me in a box somewhere, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So this is this is coercion. This is something that I don't agree to, and I, I again I believe that the divine human when we get to that place that we this complete anathema to that. Okay. Yes, and if you think about what is money, just to take one example, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that is something. It, it's essentially a token for something that you have provided. It's something you've earned, and money represents that. 
So you're earning something that you have achieved on your own. This entity called government is somehow entitled to it, with even though you didn't necessarily say you wanted to fund certain things. And this becomes to be even more spiritually problematic if, if the funding, if the tax funding goes towards things that you find to be immoral. So let's just take a few examples for depending on people's preferences. Some people might find funding abortion to be immoral. Some people might find war to be immoral. You could list many different things, and we all have different senses of morality. That's a pretty problematic thing. If you're forced to endorse something that is so wrong to you, uh, from a spiritual lens, that's very problematic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, let's move to like protection, because I think this is a thing that people think, well, we need government because they're crazy people out there, and we need the government to protect us from crazy people <laughs> that might mm. harm us. Yes. So the, the logic here, this is actually one of my favorite things to talk about, because we say that we need government, and many political philosophers have talked about this. If we didn't have this compulsory structure called government, then we would have complete chaos because human beings are too irresponsible and untrustworthy and warlike to exist on their own. So here's the solution. The solution is we're going to take a subset of those people that are untrustworthy, irresponsible, and warlike and put them in a position of unilateral decision-making authority over the rest of the people. That's the solution. So where we're going to end up many times in this conversation is government ends up being what I would call a relatively worse solution to something that's inherently problematic of just structuring society with people who are complicated. That's an inherent problem. And I think we end up in a worse situation by taking some of the some of these people who have inherent problems as human beings and giving them that position of power. Yeah, and I think that people who particularly have, I mean, like psychopathic people, <laughs> they would mm-hmm. tend to gravitate towards positions of power. They're, they're not going to be, you know, sitting and, you know, hammering nails into a board for a living. They, they gravitate, if they have abilities, they gravitate to power. So it's, it's conceivable that the government may be, have a higher percentage of the problematic people in it. Do you think? I think I think it's like putting on a platter this position of power for people who would gravitate toward that naturally. And that's not to say that everyone in politics is psychopathic, but a psychopathic personality, and this is something I talk about in the book because I think most people are generally good and, and can't think this way, but this is a, a psychologically accepted phenomenon where an individual has no capacity for empathy and love. Like that's just completely gone in their personality. And they love power, they love control, and they love to violate other people. Like that's something that brings them joy, as strange as that might sound. So for that kind of personality type, which also can be masked, there can be wolves in sheep's clothing. So really talented psychopaths can just look like they're magnanimous and philanthropic, but under the covers, there's something much different. So it's like, we can't always judge a book by its cover, that sort of mentality. Now, given that that personality type exists, even though it's not the majority of the population, here we have positions in government where if you get into that position, you can set your own morality, i.e. the laws that you unilaterally determine, and you can tell people what to do. You can make them do things that they didn't agree to. You can limit and restrict their freedom. So that is very problematic. Okay. So that's something that people just fool themselves into thinking that the good people are going to going to save us. They're going to help us. <laughs> yes, help us from ourselves. And so, and because we haven't evolved yet to a place where we can self govern, 
we need these people in charge to save us from the the crazies who might you know come into my home and and there's no other way of doing that other than with this kind of behemoth system that that has all the power right and one of the arguments that i often hear is well we can do this because the people are electing the politicians into the positions of power and therefore actually we are consenting to it so let me just go back to this initial assumption about humanity. The reason we need government in the first place is because human beings are so problematic, untrustworthy, warlike, irresponsible. So now magically, these people that were so irresponsible that needed a government, they're going to just snap into clarity and be responsible enough to elect the right people into power. That's problem <laughs> number one. <laughs> okay. That's like a, a logical contradiction. And then also, if people are so untrustworthy, why should we trust that the election system is going to be done fa so fairly? It's incredibly complex to to collect votes. And if you're using technology, there are all kinds of ways it could be manipulated on all sides of this political spectrum. So there are many problems with this idea of, oh, well, you are consenting because you elected the person. And then that's not to mention, what about the people who voted for someone and then their candidate didn't win? So then they're being coerced by the politicians that they didn't want. And this is, we might get into this, one of the problems with compulsory democracy it's sort of just like a distributed form of tyranny where the majority can become tyrannical. And somehow, societally, we've been conditioned to think that democracy is just always a good thing, but it can also be very dangerous. Mm. Yeah, I think at this point, I, I'm interested in reading this scripture because there, this is something I think that kind of talks about how people love their government, <laughs> love having government. And whether you're a Bible person or not, it, it doesn't matter to me. I think this is interesting historically, if nothing else. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel was a prophet. And the backdrop of the story is the people started saying, we want a king, we want a king. And, and they were talking to God, whoever that is for you, the source, the energy under all of creation, the creator. And they... They say, we want a king. And, and God's like, well, you know, you don't need a king. You know, it's like, you know, it's like I, the Lord, should be your North Star. Now, that can mean a lot of things. To me, that is your, your inner, inner God self should be your North Star. But that's what this character says in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so then Samuel comes back and says, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run out in front of the chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow the ground and reap the harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage, and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And then the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, No, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, and to go out before us, and to fight our battles. <laughs> So anyway, eventually God in this story says, fine, give him a king. <laughs> 
And I bring that up because it's it's like to me, this is an interesting story where the original intention is that we wouldn't have a king. And the people's like, we want a king. We want to be like other nations because we want to be protected. We want this person to ride out in front of us. We want this person to to fight our battles for us. And it was such a relinquishment of personal responsibility. And in the story, you know, it's it's definitely something that was not aligned with our divine purpose. Now people can say, well, that's we don't have kings anymore. But I think the story really talks about symbolically what the kingdom, which is still government, even though it is hypothetically elected, like you mentioned, it's it's the power, that absolute power, all of these things will happen to you. And indeed, all of these things do happen to us. Yeah. This is a profound message about our evolution individually and collectively moving toward a state of personal responsibility and autonomy and sovereignty. That's ultimately what this is about. And there is this human tendency at least in our society, to want to offload authority to others, to the supposed experts. And it's almost like a a mommy-daddy complex. We want mommy and daddy to take care of us. So there's probably some psychopathology built into this as well. Very deep childhood stuff that is projected onto this governmental figure that then is supposed to serve us. And then it can be a wolf in sheep's clothing and it can be problematic. The other thing I would add to to the story you mentioned is... Under the system that we're going to be talking about, having a, a, a king in a voluntary manner where that party is hired to say, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, that's very different than having the compulsory king that rules. Because then you become a service provider. Let's say the king is really good at, at protecting, has a group of military that's really good at protecting a landmass. Well, maybe that's something you'd want to hire and pay a, a subscription for that. That's very different than saying, let I'm going to let this party rule over me. Yeah, it's very, very different. It's very, very different. And somewhere in your book, somebody says something about monopoly that mm-hmm. that you know we we don't want monopolies in our corporations. You know, we don't want <laughs> one corporation to be in charge of all all products. And yet, you know, we have this monopoly with government that isn't it doesn't have to stand up to any standards of competition or even meeting what the customers have asked for. Right, right. So one of the arguments is if you didn't have government, then you'd have in in the economy, you'd have monopolies everywhere. So the solution is we're going to take a monopolistic government to regulate all that. So again, you end up with this logical problem of the starting point is highly problematic because you have human beings in this position of unilateral monopolistic authority. And then it's like, grant me that one miracle and then I'll figure everything else out. It's very similar to some of the cosmological arguments about the nature of reality. Like we can't explain how the universe started really or how where consciousness came from, but let's just assume that matter came first and I can explain everything else afterwards. Grant mm-hmm. me that one miracle. Yeah, and we talk about that in episode 178 and that completely turns everything upside down. Is there anything else that we want to talk about, about government? Maybe we should go into the mind control part a little bit before we go into what an alternative is because I think that's really important. And did you know that government the origins of that word, you probably do know, but it is government. The origin of that word is mind control. I have heard that. Yes. Very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> fascinating. It's fascinating that words that we just kind of take for granted as a word means something, but you know, the origin <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> staring us right in the face, controlling our minds. Maybe we should talk about, about that a little bit before we go into what some options are. 
Yeah, this is a very important aspect. And in, in the book, In End Upside Down Liberty, I included a whole chapter on mind control because I, I think it's fundamental. And it's a topic that's often overlooked, like many of these topics, of understanding how much we're being influenced by the information around us, whether it's in the education system, technology platforms, the media, that if one were to have control over the information, or at least be able to steer the information, think about what that could do to the consciousness of those who absorb that information. Now, if you were this governmental structure that has such a position of power, it would be in that party's interest to convey information about government in a certain way, to make it seem like it's benevolent, and to selectively edit out information that, that it would make the government seem to be a more malevolent entity. Yeah. And I'm thinking about my own evolution because, you know, I grew up in the 60s when <laughs> when we had these nuclear bomb exercises. <laughs> we would start we would start off school with the Pledge of Allegiance. And then during during class at some point, at some interval, it wasn't uncommon. Might have once a month where, you know, we we practice getting under our desk in case the nuclear bombs came. And I I'm I'm mentioning this because I'm thinking about how I was kind of indoctrinated into there's an enemy out there and our government is good and we are Americans. And I, I've, I've bought all of the propaganda for years and decades, decades. And, and, and it's only even, I would say recently that I've kind of popped out and been questioning it in a big way. Now mm. I've always been about smaller government because I really think that but I believe that I've always felt that we humans, if we lived anywhere close to our potential, would be self-governing entities. So I've always kind of had that philosophy in my adult life, but it's had to work against all this indoctrination <laughs> yeah. from the beginning. And and it's and it it is it is everywhere. So and I don't want anyone to think that we're like, you know, we're 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 talking about we need to bring the government down. We're not talking about that. I think we're talking about just what what would we want to create? What would we want to create that's in line with who we are as humans? What do we want to create as who we are as divine beings? What would that look like? Would we really have to just accept what we've inherited? Or would we create something beautiful that would be more in alignment with our sovereignty, with our self-respect, with our skills, with our gifts, with our creativity, with our imagination. So let's kind of go into that, that what, what else could we do? So in the book, I talk about a philosophy known as voluntarism. And this is the alternative that I propose to traditional government, which in political theory is known as statism this compulsory government structure. So statism versus voluntarism, they're really on opposite ends of the spectrum. And voluntarism is based on a simple principle. It's very easy to say, but to implement it and then to unwind it, there's a lot we could talk about. So it's known as the non-aggression principle, which asserts that we should not initiate any form of aggression against another person's body or the material property that they own. So this is the realm of private property. What is aggression? Aggression could be physical violence, fraud, theft, coercion, extortion. And here's the other important part of it. If someone initiates aggression against your body or your material private property, then you have a right to self-defense. That's the whole thing. Now, if you think about the non-aggression principle, which I 
when I talk to people about it, most people will nod their heads at what I'm saying, that that's a good idea generally. But the implication is that we can't have government in the way that we do it because government inherently violates the non-aggression principle. Its basic existence is dependent upon such violation. For example, taxation. That is a violation of the non-aggression principle because people can be forced to have to give over their property, the money that they earned to the government, even if they didn't ask for that, if they didn't sign a contract explicitly agreeing to do so, for example. That's just one example out of many. So voluntarism says, what if we had a society in which we just followed the non-aggression principle? What would that look like? And then that starts to get into theoretical economics as well. Of, well, all these things that the government does, courts, roads, military, police, you mean we're not going to have a government to do those things? Then how would they get done? And that's where a lot of the, uh, the mental exercise happens because we don't have such a society, so it is inherently theoretical. Yeah, and I think that we have such a difficult time even imagining anything else. And I think what this is is a failure of imagination. Like how else could we organize? How else would we organize? If we were starting from the ground up, would we insist on a king? And, and I, think, I think most would because of this failure of imagination. Like we can't imagine anything else. So the question is not, would we have a king or a ruler or a leader, but who is it going to be? Hmm. But we can really level that field and go, let's start from scratch like we're babies, like we're children, like we are creating like a new world. What world would we want to create? And I just invite whoever's listening to, to let go of everything that we know and let your mind start creating the society that you would want to live in and how it would look. And is there this authority that has all of the power over you or not? Because I think it's not there when we start from sovereign being, I am a daughter of God or a son of God, and I am here as a powerful being, and I adhere to the golden rule, and I want a society that recognizes that. And when people go outside the golden rule, that we have a way of dealing, you know, woman to woman, woman to man, man to man, whatever it is, with the aggression or, or the going against the rules in a way that doesn't bring in, you know, like the big guns. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm just kind of imagining myself right now how that would look. Yeah. Well, you raise a very important point because one of the biggest hurdles here, maybe the biggest hurdle with all of this is psychological in nature. There is a psychological barrier that I found in myself that just says, no, we have a status quo mm -hmm. of government all over the world. What do you mean that we're going to move to something completely different than that? How could that ever happen? And what, what I'm arguing here, especially in my, in my book is like, let's envision it. And then we can figure out how to get there, but we have to envision the better future, the more spiritually aligned future first. So that's the spirit of this conversation. It's less about the practicality of these are the things within government we would have to unwind in order to get there. No, it's let's paint the picture first. Yes. Yes. Let's paint the picture first. And, and I think that, I mean, my, <laughs> my picture, my picture is, is kind of vague, but I, I, I could see living in, in with groups of people who are aligned 
with our, our values of this non-aggression principle of the golden rule. And also, we know, one of the things that, that we would hold is the fulfillment of your purpose, you know, like, like we're each here to fulfill our purpose and be creative beings. And, and how can we create a world that supports that and that it is all with consent, you know? Mm. So it's like we recognize that there'll be outliers, but still we consent to how we're going to deal with outliers or we consent to how we're going to deal with breaks in, in the rules or whatever. We've, we, all, we all go in and like we sign a contract like you begin in the beginning. And I'm thinking as we're talking, so obviously I haven't really thought this out, but like in the beginning when you say we don't have a contract with government, but we do have a contract with this new society that maybe we enter into this society and go, here's what I agree to. And if I can't agree to these things in this society, maybe I go find another one over here that's more aligned with me. Exactly. And so you, you just described the process that I envisioned too. It's a marketplace, a marketplace of services of Rev. Carroll says, I want these things in my society. And if a lot of people want those same things, guess what? That's a business opportunity for someone to provide those things. There will be a financial incentive for someone to want to provide the things that people want. So society would then become self-organizing based on the, the various preferences of the quote unquote consumers for all of the, the services that could exist. Yes, I see that from the standpoint of creating businesses. Do you see that from the standpoint of creating like societies? Because I'm thinking like, I'm even thinking that people who like socialism, like if they, if they want to give up all of their stuff and or communal living, I should say, if they want to give up everything and share with, you know, a thousand people or a hundred people or 20 people, whatever, that, that there's a place for that, that you, that's like, I, if I want that, I find that place. And that we all agree that we want to give everything up and share resources. But if you're not that person who wants to share resources, you would find like another group over here. Exactly. No, I agree with you. I'm putting it into business terms because Uh that would then be essentially a community service that's being offered by some party that's aggregating all of and and setting the rules and saying, if you live in this landmass, we're going to be sharing our resources in accordance with X, Y, and Z, some organizing party that everyone is contracting with. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that it, it is leaderless? I think it depends. It really depends on the way it's, it's structured. It could be anything that people want. Okay. Okay. Because I think you can have leaders, especially in companies, depending on the company and, and the way the operations are run, hierarchies can be helpful. Other times, maybe hierarchies aren't so good. But if you agree to that hierarchy, it's very different than just it's being forced upon you. Because people do have unique sets of skills. So there mm-hmm. is this notion of division of labor of, of I'm good at this thing, but not so good at this thing. So someone who has a really good skill in a certain area, maybe that person should have a bit more authority in that place. And other people are willing to give that person the ability to do those things. So let's say someone is really good at farming and understands that. And another person isn't good at farming and is a really good artist. The artist might say, look, to the farmers over here, I will pay you to do these things. I will give you the authority to do this stuff because you're going to provide a service that I really need and vice versa. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I also have ultimately this vision that when, when we are, if we really apprehended our divinity, like, so I'm a unity minister. I believe that we are an inherently divine creation. And I'm not saying that we are God. What I'm saying is that we are of God, source, the great mystery, and that we are created of that substance, and that we are 
for some reason or another, we've, we've, we're tamped down. We're not living anywhere close to our realization of our divine nature. It's like someone's, you know, gotten a hold of the, the governor of our engine, of our mind engine, and we're operating at 10% instead of 90% or 80%. But if we were to open ourselves up to our divine nature, I see that we could be self-governing beings. Like I, maybe the marketplace we would still need, but in terms of government, I would, I would know, we would all know what is the right and perfect thing to do. Like we wouldn't need anyone to say, okay, go here, go there. And we wouldn't even need someone to say, don't do that, do that. And we would have access to, you know, all the divine intelligence. So we may may not even need teachers to tell us what to do. Now, I think I may be way out there with my vision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I guess what I'm thinking is that whatever steps we take, I would say that it would make sense that we would take steps in line with that evolution with that possibility that that's that's where we're going so that whatever we do in our societies gets us closer to that than not and i think our yeah. current structures also support us not realizing our divinity not realizing our full potential and you know giving up our power to others and so it keeps us from actually evolving yeah the current system is based on a third party determining what the risk preferences are for other individuals. And we saw this very clearly over the the pandemic era where the government would determine basically what risk you could take with your business, going out of your home, what medications you needed to have injected, those sorts of things. The government was, was kind of steering people and in some cases coercing or mandating certain things. And in the society we're envisioning, those decisions would be determined by the individuals and the owners of property. So maybe as an intermediate step to what you're envisioning, which is, I'm sure, the ideal future when we get to that level of enlightenment. But having rules, I'm not suggesting that rules would go away or quote unquote laws, but they would be determined by the owner of the property. So it would be private law. It's not like it would be complete chaos. There would be, the the law would be determined by those who own property. It just wouldn't be mandated by this third party. So if you didn't like the laws of a certain place, if you didn't like the rules, then you wouldn't engage with that property owner. And then society would sort of become self-organizing by those that you resonate with. You'd end up engaging with them more and, and engaging less with the ones where you, you don't find alignment. Yeah. Now, when you talk about property, I just want to raise a little flag there because I do think a lot of people think that property ownership is the problem and that that's what causes this huge separation between the uh, uber, uber rich and the, you know, the haves and the have-nots. So do you want to address that a little bit? Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I've had, especially in the spiritual community, I, I've noticed a divide where we there might be a similar s- worldview cosmologically, but then when you talk about it, like applying it to issues like property, there can be disparities. And on the extreme end of the spectrum, I've even heard the argument that any form of, of property is just too selfish because we're all one. How could you own something? And to me, I don't agree with that perspective because I think at one level, we are all one, but that's not the level at which we are operating on a daily basis. We operate within duality. There's undeniably a Mark here and a Rev Carol there at one level of reality, even though we're interconnected at some other level. And I think it's sort of, it's a, it's a denial of reality to, to not acknowledge our individuality. And the minute that we acknowledge individuality, then we have to acknowledge that there are individual needs and that we are diverse inherently, that there are just differences in terms of what we need and what we prefer and what we dislike. 
And along with that is the notion that we can't technically own something from a spiritual lens. I, I feel like we're stewards of property, but within the realm of duality, we have to take quote unquote ownership. It's not like metaphysical ownership, but it's like you're a temporary steward of that property. Um, otherwise, let's say if you didn't, if you weren't allowed to own anything, then someone could just walk into your home and take things out of your refrigerator and you could say, Hey, wait, why are you doing that? I, because they know it's everything's collectively owned. There is still an ability to share with private property, but it's voluntary rather than compulsory. And you run into a similar problem with an extreme version of collectivism where everything is communally owned, because then who's setting the rules? It's again, it's human beings setting the rules. And it's just like, how do you determine? Is, is it just the majority determines what properties other people get and they get to impose that on the minority? I mean, I've, I've heard this phrase often that the ultimate minority is the individual. So if we end up with individuals who have their property, who are mutually engaging in exchanges on a consent basis, then you can still have sharing, but at least the decision-making is, is allowed for the individual rather than the decision-making being made for that person. And I also want to clarify on what I mean by property because I haven't defined it and there are different definitions for it. In my book, I, I talk a lot about the Austrian school of economics, which look at, looks at economics from this lens of basically let's, let's think about a society in which government isn't intervening and why is government problematic from an economic standpoint. So I often reference Murray Rothbard as one example. If, if your audience is interested, there's a lot, of, a lot more detail into these topics. But the idea behind property from this school of thought is that when a person mixes his or her labor with raw materials, then it becomes that thing. So imagine clay being molded into a sculpture. The clay was some natural raw material, then it was molded through the, the talent or just the time and energy of that person. And then that sculpture becomes the property of that individual. What Rothbard says is it becomes an extension of your person. So you become from using spiritual terminology, the steward, i.e. the property owner of that sculpture. And then it is your property and you have an ability to exchange with others and just apply that to everything to you could, if you do something to land where you mix your labor with it, then that can become your land and then you can then trade it and so forth. Okay. All right. And certainly everybody's private property includes their own body. <laughs> yes. Body and then other things, but that's very important as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm feeling we've got about 10 minutes and I, I know that people have a lot of questions about things like, well, you know, how do you build the road or how, how do you protect from an invasion or how do you stop people from dumping pollution into the river? Things like that. The things that people feel that they need government for. Can we address some of those in, in at least the hypothetical voluntarism that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And this is also the realm of the Austrian School of Economics, where theoretical economists have gone through these exercises in excruciating detail to envision these sorts of things without the compulsory government structure. And in chapter five of the book, I go through a summary of all these traditional questions that come up. So, and the answer in all the cases, who would build the roads, who would do the courts, who would be, do the military? Well, who does it now? Human beings do it now. So human beings would do it, but the manner in which they do it might be different than the way the government does it. And one of the problems with government, many, one of the many problems is that government does not have financial accountability in the same way that a traditional service provider does. 
If the government fails to produce and serve the serve customers, i.e. the populace in a way that people like, then what happens? You still pay taxes. The government can still print money effectively through central banks, which is the Federal Reserve in the US. It doesn't go out of business. So the, the financial accountability and incentive to perform isn't there in the same way. So imagine, let's say, a private police force. Well, first of all, there's private security companies that exist right now where you hire a group of p- human beings to provide services that you you're demanding. And the same thing would apply to police services. There would be private companies that offer police servicing and you could hire them. And the ones that do a good job, a lot of people are going to demand them. They're going to want to pay for that service. And the ones that don't do so well, you're not going to demand them. So let's think about roads. The same thing. There, There would be an owner of that land that could then build roads on it. And there are many possible solutions. So some that I talk about in the book, Walter Block is one of the economists who's looked into this, among others. You could have, this is again, this is one entrepreneurial solution. And one of the problems here, challenges here is that entrepreneurs come up with things that people haven't thought of. That's what makes them so great often. So what we're envisioning here maybe is not even as good as it could be when some creative person enters the picture. But mm-hmm. let's just consider this one example of you could have a sensor on your car that registers when you're on a certain road. And when you switch to a different road owner, even though they might be contiguous, you might end up on a different road owner, then you could pay electronically, for example, just by, you wouldn't have to like manually pay a toll at each road and just stop everywhere. And then I've heard a bunch of people ask, well, what if you ended up with some kind of a monopoly system where the road owners got together and they did something really bad in a certain area of the world? Well, if that were true and they ended up like blocking things, then businesses and, and human beings just wouldn't have as much of an incentive to want to live in that area. If you couldn't get around as easily or if there was that much, much corruption around transportation, then that's going to push the demand elsewhere. So there's an incentive for the road owner or any service provider to do a good job because then they're going to get more revenue. And that could even apply to, for example, if you're a road owner who generates revenue by, let's say, the volume, the number of cars that come through then you're going to have an incentive to want to reduce accidents because an accident could block the whole thing where it's just that you're just stopped in traffic and then your revenue is cut off. So then there's going to be an incentive to increase safety, for example. So you could apply this sort of creative thinking to mm-hmm. every service that the government currently does. You would have human beings creatively providing a service that people want. And if they do a good job, they will get paid for it. If they don't, they're in trouble financially. Yeah. And I guess those are just a couple ideas. And and I think I think a lot of people think that government is good because it it keeps people from doing bad things, you know, like 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 the polluter or like you know the 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 bad guy. How do we how do we address that? So what Rothbard Murray Rothbard, the Austrian economist, says about environmental concerns in, in such a free society is that he regards uh, pollution and a, any other environmental damage to be an invasion of private property. It's a form of aggression against private property. So if someone, if let's say you own a body of water and there's pollution that's getting into it from some other place, then that is ground, that's grounds for self-defense in some way to work it out with that party. So that's how we could look at any, any, of any environmental issue. Mm-hmm. And one other thing the Austrian economists are, point out, which I haven't heard talked about much else elsewhere, is that if you look at the Soviet Russia, the USSR, there's a book called Ecocide in the USSR, where they talk about how much pollution there was and how they destroyed the environment. And that was a highly centrally planned economy where the government was very much involved. And did they do a good job? No. So again, if you bring the incentive back to the individual to protect him or herself, 
and his or her property, then it's like everything sort of works out. I mean, not perfectly. It's I'm not I'm not trying to paint a perfect utopia, but then at least the the individual is responsible if things go well or don't go well. Yeah, and coming back to spirituality, I think you make the case that this kind of organization is more in line with our spiritual nature and our spiritual evolution development. Yeah, and I think this is probably the reason what tipped me over the edge to want to write a book on this topic, because I do hear a lot of compelling arguments politically and economically against statism and traditional government. But from my lens, I was coming from the spiritual awakening angle, and that's what I was totally focused on. And the non-aggression principle is effectively the golden rule. It's just like a corollary to the golden rule. The golden rule is treat others well because we're all interconnected. Do unto others as you would want done to you. And it's said differently in various religious traditions all over the world. This principle is all is everywhere, which is powerful. But also as someone like me who's who studied the near-death experience so much, the the so near-death experience, which I believe we talked about last time, this is a mm-hmm. case where a person, let's say, is in cardiac arrest. They're clinically dead in many cases, and yet when they come back to life, they report vivid memories that were realer than real, meaning that somehow their consciousness was active, even though their brain was not active. So one of the things that's often reported in near-death experiences is a life review, where people relive their whole lives in apparently a short amount of time, and they become the people that they impacted. So if they were very good to someone, they get to feel what that was like through the other person's eyes. And if they were not so good to that person, they felt the pain through that person's eyes. So what Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, who studied many near-death experiences and, and people who come back from these experiences, he says that this is beyond morality even. It's natural law. That's what he's hearing from these various people, that this is so fundamental of like, we should treat others the way we want to be treated. We're interconnected at this other level of reality. So if we were to apply that principle of the golden rule as something that's actually embedded within the fabric of reality, rather than just something that sounds nice, then the way we do government now, which is something that inherently violates the non-aggression principle, is also violating natural law spiritually. So that's where it all clicked for me. It's like, wow, this makes sense on every level, politically, economically, metaphysically, to just stick with the non-aggression principle. Let's, let's go principles first. And then society unfolds as it needs to, but we, it starts with the principles. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Really, really interesting. The non-aggression principle is really at the the core of all of this, and we are organized contrary to the non-aggression principle. Yes. And I think about all the things that, you know, when you're a little kid and and you go, well, if I was president, I would do this. <laughs> or if I was president, I would make everyone do that. And it's kind of a young and immature way of, you know, how, how I would make everyone care for each other. I would make sure that no one hurt each other. I would make sure that nobody, you know, killed animals. That would have been my thing. And the making of people to behave a certain way is really not what we want. What we really want is for people's hearts to be fully open and actualized so that we live the non-aggression principle, so that we live in a way that we voluntarily want to love others and take care of them and not harm them. And you know that's kind of the free will <laughs> that's a part of mm-hmm. our of the whole creation and so creating a society that mirrors that and allows people to evolve but has at this core the non-aggression principle such that we work out our differences when we violate that i, I think that would have to be at the very core of all of this yeah 
And it's really, it's a, the, the idea is to leave people alone and let them make their own decisions. But that doesn't mean that, that we can't give advice to someone or make suggestions. So that's fully part of the system too. But it's not taking that extra step of forcing them to then do what you unilaterally think is best yeah, for them. Forcing people, I'm going to force you to be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to force you to do the right thing. Yeah. Okay. So I want to close. I remember this, you mentioned Murray Rothbard, and I think the last statement of your book is, liberty has never been fully tried in the modern world, which is a quote of his. Mm -hmm. It's something we've never really tried. This is an experiment that we're talking about. I want to give you the last words, whatever it is you want to talk about. One thing I have not mentioned, and I mentioned in my book and di didn't see in a lot of the research that I did, was combining this idea of voluntarism with a globally metaphysical worldview. So what I call it in the book is a metaphysical political philosophy that this is something that we would envision for the future. So I think voluntarism on the political spectrum if we're going on the spectrum of statism to voluntarism, I would say we need to move toward voluntarism. But there's another axis here, which we talked about in, my, in the last interview of scientific materialism, physicalism, this idea that life is random and meaningless. There's no divine, there's no spiritual aspect. That's one end of the spectrum. And the other is what some might call non-duality or the idea that we are interconnected spiritually and that can take on many different forms. So what I argue in this book is that we want to move more toward the spiritual, more toward voluntarism. And the terminology I use in the book is non-dual voluntarism. And what does that mean? Is that we would live by the non-aggression principle politically, but that would give people a lot of freedom in terms of how they act. Because there are things you can do where you don't violate the non-aggression principle, where you leave people alone, but maybe those decisions aren't so good, or maybe other times they are good. So then it's up to the individual to exercise discernment and to think about the spiritual consequences of his or her decisions mm. and let that guide the decision-making outside of the non-aggression principle. Because under voluntarism, there's a gap there. There is a bit of a gap of how you should exercise all this freedom. And what I argue is we need the spiritual part too, because then people will optimize their own decision-making on a personal basis. So make your life review a pleasant experience. Yes. <laughs> exactly. As pleasant as possible. <laughs> Yep. Okay. Well, thank you, Mark. I think this is an interesting conversation. I think we just, you know, barely went down the rabbit hole, but I think it may be enough for my listeners. <laughs> Not sure. I like to go to the edge of the box and outside of it a little bit and just think about, well, you know, what what else? What else? And and do we really have to to accept what what we've been raised with and what we've We've been conditioned for because I think we're at this cusp of possibly creating something. We're kind of at a death and rebirth process and of all the structures, all the structures that are out there. People may not know that, but it sure feels like it to me. And so if there's dying structures, we need to be right on the ready to be creating <laughs> something new and beautiful and start using this imagination to begin with, to not stay at this low vibration, to use this imagination the beginning to begin with to envision and create a picture for what else do we want. Very well said. That's where we are. All yeah. right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for writing your books. Thank you for being such an interesting thinker on the planet and for, for taking us to the edge of the box and down the rabbit hole a little bit. And I uh, just really appreciate the work that you do on the planet. 
Rev. Carol, thanks for all the work that you do on the planet as well. I very much appreciate it. And thank you for being willing to talk about this topic, which is, I think, a very important one, but a very challenging one. Yeah, thank you. I do get that from my guests. Thank you for talking to me about that. No one else will talk to me about it. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. Everyone, thanks for listening. And I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.